and I'm going to be bringing uh, what I feel God has laid on my heart this morning. But just before we do that, what a really precious morning we've had so far. Isn't it great just to hear so many of the testimonies of what God has done and is doing? Um, And what I love about testimony, it tells us God is going to do again, because that's the whole point of testimony, isn't it? It's God, you've done this for them, you can do this for me. So I really wanted to encourage you, if any of those testimonies resonated with you, then press into God in that area, because all those testimonies say is that God moves in our lives, often in unexpected ways, where he instigates things and sets things up, and we have that penny drop moment through to circumstances, or even growing as we face pressures and challenges into the character and calling that God has called us to. So thank you to everyone who shared testimonies. I know it's really brave to do so. Um, And just to encourage you, church, if you have testimonies, share them, because they are indicators of God's reality in our life, aren't they? Excellent. Just checking you're all alive. Good. I like response, so please shout out a response, otherwise I'll get really concerned that um, I'm talking rubbish. So why don't we start with this morning? Let's just pray this morning's message. Father God, we just want to come to you in the name of Jesus. We acknowledge your presence in the room. We acknowledge that you want to speak to us this morning. You want to reveal to us truth of who you are who we are in relationship to you, how you work in our lives. And so we invite you to come and speak to us this morning, speak to us afresh, speak to us anew. Come and, come and um, challenge us if we need to be challenged, Lord, to follow after you as we look at faith this morning and walking in steps of faith. Amen. Whenever we step out in something new, uh, it's okay to have a couple of false starts along the way. I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was in my teenage years, I decided that I was going to get into fishing. And I'd never really fished since being like like a really little kid with my dad. So I don't remember much about fishing. And we never really fished from about the age of four onwards. So I went and raided our shed, uh, I chatted to a mate and said, oh, let's go fishing. And he was like, yeah, all right, let's go fishing. So I raided Dad's shed and I found like the, the oldest, like rustiest, mankiest fishing rods that had been left in there for like a decade. And I pulled one out and the reels were okay, they were bearable, so we set the reel up. And I didn't really know what I was doing, just kind of like, oh, I know you need a bit of shock lead on it. So that when you kind of do the casting thing, it's not going to snap the line. So I kind of did what I knew and gathered together this like really ill-equipped, uh, poor toolkit of fishing equipment that I needed for, for the day. So my mate and I went down to Paul Key and we thought, let's have a go at this. And, and I, bearing in mind, I've not casted a fishing rod for a very long time. Now was my moment to cast the line and have a go at this fishing malarkey. So I got the rod and he, when he, I don't know if you're a fisherman, if you are, correct, correct me on my terminology. If you're not, bear with me. Um, when you're casting a line, you've got to hook the, the little bit of line under your, under your finger so that when you take off the bail arm, which stops the line from just flowing on out from the rod, uh, it, it holds it in place, and then you basically lean back with your rod and cast it, and as you do, you let go of the line with your fingers. So it's a bit to coordinate if you're not used to it, and um, if you're not a coordinated person, you can get yourself into a bit of a mess. So here I was, Paul Key, my mate's there, he's cast his line, he did all right, it's my turn, so I'm there, I'm ready, and I, I've, got, I've got the line in my finger, and I go, and I'm looking, and I'm like, where is the weight? 
where is the line? I can't see it in front of me, and I'm sure that's the direction it should be going in. But I could hear the bell alarm going. So I knew it was going somewhere, and then it stopped. And it, there was no plop in the water, nothing. And I, I kind of thought, what's going on here? And I followed the rod and the line, and I realized the line was behind me, and I'd accidentally let go of the, bell, the, the bit of line far too early, and it shot up behind me and hooked itself over a lamppost. <laughs> Literally, there's this, just, this kind of wrapped around hook and weight just swinging there. And I'm like, how am I going to get that down? Because it's wrapped itself round. You know, like that Indiana Jones moment with the whip where he's, and he can swing on it. It was like that. Not that I tried that with the fishing rod. And I, I gave it a couple of tugs. And in the end, I just had to cut the line and try and start again. It's not, the, it's not the worst casting story I've got. Another one from Paul Key, very similar thing. I couldn't coordinate my finger properly. Let it go behind me. It hit a motorcyclist's helmet as he was going past. <laughs> But after a couple of false starts, I managed to get the line in the water, and later, later that day, about an hour later, I caught my first fish, which was a goby. If you don't know what a goby is, it's a spiny, horrible little thing. Uh, you can't do anything with it other than hook it off your line and throw it back in again, because they're just vicious and spiny and horrible. Um, but the point was, is I got there in the end, and I caught a fish. The point of the story is that when you're stepping out into something new, and we're talking at the moment uh, along the lines of faith, which is our current series, Steps of Faith, that when we step out in new areas of faith or in areas where God has called us to step out in faith, it is okay to make some false starts. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay sometimes to look at what God is calling us to and think, I'm not sure I can do this because I'm ill-equipped with a dodgy fishing rod and an out-of-date rusty toolkit with you know, barely anything in there that I need. Uh, it's okay to look at that, feel daunted, and take a step back. It's okay to make some false starts. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a character. His name is Barak, who literally does just that. He makes a massive false start when he's called by God to do something pretty um, awesome for the people of Israel. I don't expect you to flip there, but I'm just going to quickly go to Hebrews chapter 11, because we've referred to Hebrews 11 a couple of times now in our series of faith. And that's, that's primarily because in chapter 11 of Hebrews, Paul lists a whole number of biblical characters who have moved and done things through faith that were worth mentioning. And I kind of like to, to think of chapter 11 of Hebrews as like the hall of faith. This is where we have everybody's pictures up along the hallway of, of people who have achieved things through faith, uh, many of whom we can read, actually all of whom we can read their stories. And as Sam pointed out a couple of, week, a couple of weeks ago, even people who've not made it into, into this chapter because the hall would go on forever because there were so many people that Paul could have referred to. And then just down towards the bottom of this chapter, he mentions a few other people. Let me see if I can quickly find it as a, as a scan. Here we go, verse 32. Paul says this, And what more shall I say? I've already said quite a lot about faith. What more shall I say? For time would fail me. In other words, I just don't have time to go into detail about all of these people. But time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. 
the amazing thing is these were just ordinary men like you and I. I'm going to throw women in there as well. Men and women, they were just normal people, but through faith did incredible things. That through faith, there is a potential for every single one of us in this room to achieve massive things for God. That could be ministry-wide. That could be raising a godly family. I don't want to diminish, you know, what that might look like because if it's done through faith, it will leave a legacy for eternity. And you may find yourself written in a hall of fame very similar to this. The interesting thing about Barak and Barak's story, I don't know if you know it well, but if you do, when we first meet Barak, he is not a man moving in faith. In fact, he's the opposite. I didn't quite twig that. I mean, I read Hebrews 11. I thought, oh, here's a man of faith. And then I read the story of Barak and I was reading it thinking, but hang on a minute, as we're introduced to Barak, this man is not doing what God has called him to do. And we can deduce that just by kind of looking at the passage in a little bit more detail. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Job, no, not Job, to Judges chapter 4. We'll read the story, but I want you to bear in mind the whole idea of a false start. Because as we're going to read now, we're going to, we're going to discover that Barak is a man who's called to God to move in faith but he makes a false start. But later, something changes and he ends up in the hall of faith. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Caesarea, who lived in, oh gosh, Harasheth Hagayim, there we go, look at that. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord... The God of Israel commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, two of the tribes of Israel, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent in, in a, as far away as the oak in Zebulun. Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Caesarea was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to the Mount, up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagayim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? 
So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariots and fled away on foot. Stop there. So let's have a quick look at the context. So the people of Israel were living in freedom um, after uh, uh, Ehud, but then when Ehud died, uh, they started to do what was evil in the Lord's sight, i.e. they turned away and started living in a way that was not honoring to God. And as a result, they ended up coming into slavery to King Jabin. And what we're told here, it doesn't tell us in much detail, is that Israel became oppressed. Basically, they were pushed down, they were marginalized, they were not able to live freely as God's people, but they were oppressed under King Jabin. And King, and King Jabin had a commander called Zizera, and he was in charge of a massive army, and that army were all clad in iron. Like This is probably the first indicator of plate armor or something like that going on. Not only that, he also had 900 chariots also made of iron. So we know that Caesarea had a well-equipped, well-prepared, well-organized army at his disposal. In comparison, and this is something to help us understand, the people of Israel who were oppressed had an army that was ill-equipped and not prepared because in chapter 5 of Judges it tells us that there was not shield nor spear within 40,000 men of Israel at this time. So the people were so, Ill, um, so oppressed, so ill-equipped uh, that they had no way of fighting back or standing their ground. Now with no weapons and no shields, facing off against an army of people clad in iron with iron chariots are pretty unequal odds, if you ask me. That is not an easy thing to face off. And so the people ended up for 20 years being oppressed. 20 years being oppressed by another king and his army. And it got to the point where they just started to cry out to God. And often there was a pattern, certainly in the book of Judges, where God delivered the nation. They did quite well for a while, and then they slipped and messed up, and they ended up needing to be uh, rescued again. And this pattern often, if you read through Judges, keeps happening. So here we are again, going around that same cycle. And then as people begin to cry out, God speaks to a man called Barak. Now, we don't see that particular conversation happening between God and Barak because it doesn't tell us in Scripture. But what we are told is that Deborah sends for Barak and says to Barak, has not God commanded you? In other words, God has already spoken to you, Barak. So we can deduce from the text here that Barak, at some point, had been called by God to rally 10,000 troops from the tribe of Nephtali and the tribe of Zebulun and to go down to Kishon, which was a river valley. And God had said to him that when you do that, I will draw out Caesarea and his men and I will give them into your hand. In other words, you will overthrow their army. Now the problem is here is Barak's probably looking at this army and going, we've got no shields, <laughs> we've got no spears, we've been oppressed for 20 years, we're probably not in a good physical shape, ready for battle. He has a massive army, they're all wearing iron armor, there's 900 iron chariots. I'm not sure this is possible, God. I'm not doing it. Or something along those lines. He looked at the big problem in front of him and he missed or didn't have faith in God who said, I will deliver Caesarea into your hands. He looked at how big the task was in front of him 
and he couldn't see how God would intervene. And so he must have, at some point, just got on with life and ignored what God had asked him to do or potentially ran from God and avoided him. And then God spoke to Deborah the prophetess in a very similar way to how Samuel spoke to, um, how God spoke to Samuel to call David to account. Deborah is spoken to and she sends for um, Barak and she calls him to account. He basically, she basically says, bring him to me. And Barak turns up and she's like, right, Barak, <laughs> has God not said to you to do this? In other words, come on, Barak, where is your faith? Because God has said to you that you will have Caesarea placed into your hand. So Barak made a false start. God got him into the blocks, God spoke to him, and he went, ah, no, thank you. And he walked in the opposite direction, or he hid, or he avoided doing what God had called him to do, because he didn't have faith that God would overthrow Caesarea's army. And so whilst he's here talking to Deborah, he says to Deborah, okay, okay, I'll do this as long as you go with me. So he needed Deborah, who's this prophet, recognized by all Israel as a judge to go with him. And uh, she says, I'll go with you. I will go with you. Your journey will look slightly different now, but I will go with you. And so she journeys with him. He gathers, gathers the troops, uh, 10,000 men, and they head down to the valley of Kishon, to the river valley. Um, and they are, as they're doing that, Caesarea hears word that, that this army is amassing. Now we've got to bear in mind that they might have cobbled together some weapons of some kind. We don't really know. That hasn't really given us much of a picture. We just know that he gathered these 10,000 men and off they did. So at this point, Barak has made the decision, do you know what? God has asked me to do this and with the help of a prophet, I, I will step up. I will overcome my false start and I'll get back in the block and I'm going to run this race. And so he heads down there and he gathers the people. And, and what the Bible tells us is that Caesarea, his word of this, he gathers his army, his ironclad warriors, his chariots, and they ride down to the valley of Kishon where they, they greet the army of Israel. And then when they stood facing each other, it's at that point, I'm just trying to find the, the, the reference here in Judges, that Deborah says to Barak very clearly, up, get up. Get up, Barak, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Get up. Here is Barak, who's looking at this army in front of him, thinking, I'm not sure we can do this. But suddenly the prophet of God is saying, get up. And right here, Barak has a choice. He can either be obedient and faithful and trust that what is being said to him is going to happen, that God is going to give Caesarea into his hand, or is he going to do what he did previously and run? Get up. Does not the law go out before you? And he makes a decision. So Barak went down with, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. I mean, that's a pretty impressive victory there already. But what that bit doesn't capture is that there is a supernatural intervention from God as well that occurs here that we only get if we flip over and read chapter 5 of Judges. And what chapter 5 tells us, I think it's in verse 31, is that suddenly there is a torrent of water that comes gushing down the Kishon Valley and it sweeps away Caesarea's army. 
So in this moment, the Barak steps up in faith. Not only does he step up in faith, he also witnesses the miraculous of God. That suddenly, the waters of the Kishon River come flooding down the valley and take out the army. And as the army turns and flees, Barak and his men chase and strike down every single one of them. And Barak frees the whole of Israel from the oppression of Sisera and his army. If you read on a little bit more in the story, Sisera runs away uh, and he hides in a tent that belongs to a lady called Jael. And uh, she's like, come on in, hide under this blanket. Um, she knows who Sisera is. Uh, she, he knows that she's being hunted. And, and I love, I'm just going to reference it just because it made me laugh when I read it. Um, she, she basically takes this tent peg. But this is not the funny bit, by the way. Takes this tent peg, and whilst he's hiding under this blanket, decides to basically drive it through his head and nail him to the ground, and therefore kills Cesara, who thinks he's got away with being captured. And, and then it literally says, uh, I've, got, I've got to read it because it made me laugh a lot. Um, there we go. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. Full stop. Next, next sentence. So he died. Just in case you were going to miss it, so he died. No, I don't want Wi-Fi. Out of the way. What I want to draw out of the story of Barak is that Barak was called to step out in faith, to step out and do something for God. And he looked at the task and he thought, I'm not sure I can do that. And he made a false start. And he tried to avoid stepping out in faith because it was scary. It was too big. Maybe he doubted himself. Maybe he looked at the tools it had around him and he thought, this is not possible. He didn't have in mind that God is a supernatural God and could do more than he could probably ever dream and imagine. And instead, he looked at the natural circumstances, he looked at his natural abilities, he looked at the enemy's army, and he made the decision, I can't do this. I can't. And he chose to walk in the opposite direction. I don't know about you, but if a prophet suddenly rocks up and says, has God not said to you, and quotes word to word what God has said, <laughs> you're probably going to listen, aren't you? And at that point, he makes a decision to get back in the game, to get back on the blocks, and as I was reading that, I really felt what God was saying to me is there is grace over the false start. There is a space of grace over the false start. Maybe God has called you to something and you have avoided it. Or you've looked at the task and thought it's too big. Or you've doubted in your own ability. And so you've avoided stepping out in that area but do you know what? There's grace in God for that. And I really feel that God is saying that that doesn't mean that you've missed the boat. That doesn't mean that you can't become a person of faith. It doesn't mean that suddenly the plan of God for your life is, is suddenly not going to happen because you've made some false starts. A bit like me with the fishing, I'd made some false starts. And I really feel that God is saying this morning that if you've made some false starts, it's okay, like Barak, to get back into the blocks. And as I was thinking about this and praying about it, the Holy Spirit reminded me of a parable that Jesus told in the New Testament. Come with me to Matthew 21. 
starting at verse 28. This is a parable that's referred to as the the parable of uh, two sons. What do you think? This is Jesus speaking as he's teaching the people. A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father, they said? Well, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. To come into land with what I really felt God was saying to me as I prepared for this message. In this parable, there are two sons. The first son, uh, the father asks, can you come and work in the garden? He says no. He doesn't respond in faith to the father. He doesn't want to help get on board with what his dad's calling him to do. But later, he reconsiders. Maybe he's too busy doing his own thing. Maybe he's sat in his bedroom playing on his Xbox. I don't know. He's there. He's, but later on, he has a think about it. He goes, do you know what? I want to go and work with my dad. He puts it down and he goes out and he helps in the vineyard. The other son's like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll come and help your dad. But then what he does is he then puts on his Xbox and chooses not to go and help his dad. And I really felt that what this parable teaches or what I saw in this parable is that sometimes we might make the false start a little bit like the first son in this parable where we say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to work with your dad. I'm not going to join in with this. But later he changed his mind. And he says, yes, dad, I'm going to get in the vineyard and I'm going to get on board and I'm going to help. And I really felt that, 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 uh, that what Jesus was illustrating here is that it's okay to change your mind. If maybe if you've, you know, been, you've been called to something and you've, you've said, I'm not doing that. But there's still that element, that draw on your heart that this is what God's calling me to do. It could be something really small. It could be something really big might be going and chatting to your neighbour, reaching out to the the people in your community or speaking to that colleague at work, sharing sharing your faith and speaking to to people around you. Maybe it's, you know, you want to step out in an area of gifting, but you kind of feel inadequate to do so. Maybe it's trusting that God loves me, as Daniel shared, but I've been running from it. But it's okay, like Barak, who who ran and, and felt intimidated to step out in faith and to, and to move in faith, to just pause and stop and, do you know what, I'm going to change my mind. Because faith is choice. Faith is choice. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith isn't about whether or not I am equipped and I have the right fishing rod and all the equipment. Faith doesn't take into account all the circumstances around me faith is a choice to trust in God and often many of us are looking for the feeling or we're looking for that point where we in our own ability have made us feel adequate to do what God is calling us to do but the reality is is if God has called you in your inadequacy he will equip you along the way and like Barak if we make that decision to get in faith to choose to believe that God can do what he's called me to do through my hands, then we will, like Barak, see the miraculous of God. 
You know, these people, these men who just chose, yes, I'll believe, I'll do this for you, God, who then went on to do things like, you know, rout armies, stop the lives of, stop the mouths of lions. And it all came down to them choosing. I will do what you've called me to do, God, and I will trust that you will work through me. So to land, because I'm conscious of time, I want to ask you that question. Are there things that God has called you to that you have felt inadequate about, you felt that you're ill-equipped for, or you felt it's too big for me? Maybe you've looked at your own abilities and you've gone, I can't do that. The truth is you can. Through faith, God, who meets us in our weakness, can work through you. And this morning, I want to encourage you to be a barrack, to up and go in the areas that God has called you to. To head down to your Kishon Valley, whatever that might look like, whether it's talking to the neighbour across the road. It's not quite facing off against uh, an army clad in iron, but it can feel like that, can't it, sometimes? Because your heart starts going, and just trust God. Choose to believe that God wants to work through you. Why don't we stand and pray? Just take a couple of minutes just to respond to what I've just challenged us with. Maybe in your mind you're already thinking about some of those things that God has called you to that you shied away from and, you, and, and for whatever reason. I'd like you to just bring that before God right now. Maybe it's something to do with home life. Maybe it's something to do with calling. Maybe it's something to do with your, your gifting that you want to step out into. A good example would be maybe you've been desiring to step out more in the prophetic. But you kind of feel like, can I, can I do that? Can I, can I hear from God like that? Maybe it's a work thing. Just take a second to bring it before God. The first thing would be to say sorry for avoiding your calling, God. God.